We're a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. Aside from the experts, we also interview people diagnosed with dementia. Being Patient Perspectives looks at that first-person perspective of people living with dementia. Welcome to Being Patient's live talk. Uh, I'm Nicholas, reporter with Being Patient, and today uh, we'll be speaking with Dennis Doniak, uh, who's a who was a caregiver uh, to his late wife Nancy Doniak, and she was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's in 2015, and uh, and passed away in 2021. And Dennis will be sharing, you know, his experience as uh, as Nancy's caregiver. So. Um, Dennis, thank you for joining us. Nicholas, thank you for having me. My pleasure. And, you know, Dennis, I just want to start our interview by, you know, by understanding, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, you and Nancy first met and, you know, your relationship and family and tell us a little bit about, you know, um, Nancy's career uh, as a librarian. Absolutely, because it all it all relates together. And Nancy and I met uh 50 years ago before she passed away and uh, dated throughout college and were married for 47 years. We had two boys, uh, but they lived distant from where we live. We live in central Florida in the Orlando area. One boy lives in Knoxville with a grandson who is now 15. Uh, the other son lives in Philadelphia with a grandson who, who uh, unfortunately was born with cerebral palsy at age, he's now age four. So Nancy's career was a, as a librarian. Uh, it's one that uh, I love telling the story because it affects what we've created as a legacy for her in helping other family members in dealing with the Alzheimer's dementia stories, especially kids. Uh, we found that our grandson had uh, issues as well. And it's that unfortunate piece that people don't understand the effect that dementia has on family. And so we have been actively trying to find resources to share at this level. Uh, but certainly uh, the difficulty came about when Nancy struggled in her job as a catalog librarian, a person who was very detail oriented, who struggled in terms of the uh, accuracy and all of the requirements of her position. And unfortunately, uh, she would come home crying from her job. It was such stressful that uh, we decided that we could afford for her to retire. Uh, she was age 62 when she actually did that. And so uh, we were in a financial situation where we could afford retirement for her and then we can deal with uh, the issues therefore. Mm, right. So her early symptoms of Alzheimer's. And I think for a lot of people, especially for people with early onset um, Alzheimer's or other forms of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, you know, they're still working, but then like the early symptoms really manifest themselves uh, when people are at work, right? And the difficulty is we didn't recognize that her difficulty was a form of dementia or a disability until after she retired got her fully tested 
and then was diagnosed uh, two months after retirement with mild cognitive impairment, MCI. And the neuropsychologist termed that a disability. Well, many of us in employment have long-term disability insurance. And had we recognized that earlier, uh, she would have been receiving long-term disability insurance versus uh, just social security. And so I advocate very strongly to my colleagues and other professionals and people in jobs that if you are struggling in terms of some cognitive issues, keep yourself tested through your general uh, physician. There are ways that it might identify a weakness in terms of vitamin deficiency or some other non-cognitive uh, form of dementia. Uh, but if it is a disability, use that uh, long-term disability insurance. Mm, right. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, at the time when Nancy was uh, still working as a librarian cataloger and she was starting to experience some of those symptoms, uh, early symptoms uh, of Alzheimer's that, you know, the family didn't recognize those were um, uh, symptoms of like Alzheimer's. Then what did you think? Uh, what did you think was was the problem then? Well, a lot of it uh, was covered up. We find that in many of the patients, uh, they overlook some of the situations and they make compensations throughout. And in Nancy's case, uh, we had come up with tools that she would use at work to work on some of this without recognizing that it was true a true disability. And so very important that they be checked out while still employed uh, rather than uh, potentially being released from their job, being fired, uh, laid off, uh, or in Nancy's case, retirement. Mm, right. And um, so in 2014, she was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And then uh, in 2015, then she was uh, officially diagnosed with early onset. Alzheimer's. Once we got the MCI diagnosis, uh, we started looking at other services in our area, and we learned about various drug trials that she started enrolling in that she was uh, applicable for. And it was through some of these drug trials that we identified the fact that she had the APOE4 gene, which is a higher incidence of dementia among people. Uh, she had family traits of dementia in her family with her mother passing away at age 86. And so we didn't anticipate early onset Alzheimer's in Nancy's case. And then from that, we also got various PET scans that showed the amyloid plaque uh, in the brain. And then the telling story was the actual spinal tap, which showed the high levels of amyloid in her spinal fluid. And that confirmed the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Right. So it was through participating in, uh, in Alzheimer's research that she finally got that diagnosis of uh, early onset Alzheimer's. And that's part of the advocacy that Nancy and I took on very early in the diagnosis. And we found that there were resources available that we could tap. Uh, definitely support groups in our area that gave us a new network of friends because our old network of friends suddenly disappeared, including family members who couldn't relate to what was happening to Nancy. 
And so that was difficult. However, uh, it's not the end of life with that diagnosis. The early diagnosis gave us a lot of opportunity to get our legal matters in order, to have very in-depth discussions with our boys about what we wanted through the conversation project on end of life, uh, on terms of the actions and wills and uh, various uh, powers of attorney and uh, durable health surrogate. So all of that's very important that we do early enough when Nancy could take an active role in making decisions and communicate that. I was very, very proud of her of doing that. Right, so her early diagnosis really helped um, her to be part of all these really important discussions, right, before it was too late, right? And then she even participated in TV segments uh, in the local area and radio talk shows in talking about what this disease was like. And uh, even today, I recall uh, her saying, her, one, one person asking her, what's it feel like to have dementia when you forget something? And she says, what does it matter? So I forget something, big deal, and move on. And, and for me, it was making sure that each day we had together were good days, with minimizing those bad moments. And, mm -hmm. and to this day, that's been my forte. We have good days and bad moments, and that's exactly what we wanted to have happen uh, as we move forth, including placing her in memory care, where I know she was well taken care of and did enjoy the experience uh, in memory care, even though for me, it was the most difficult decision I had to make. Right. and. And she entered uh, a memory care community in 2019, right? And, and you mentioned it's, it was such a difficult decision and it's the same for so many family members who have to eventually, um, you know, place their loved ones in, in a care facility. Can you tell us about, you know, how, what led you to really make that position and, and yeah. Well, Nancy and I traveled extensively and she was engaged in a lot of activities, including the Brain Fitness Academy in Orlando that really helped support her throughout the uh, early part of her disease. And we would travel extensively on dementia-friendly cruises. We would uh, go on our own cruises itself, travel internationally until our last cruise uh, made it so difficult for her to transition from one location to the next. And it became difficult for me to travel alone with her. And from that point on, it was time to explore uh, memory care communities or where Nancy would be safer uh, because she was getting to the point where uh, her mood swings were very difficult. And since I was the 24 seven care partner to her, the stress level on me was increasing. And I know that uh, statistics show that a very high proportion of care partners pass away from the stress before their loved one. And I did not want that to happen. And I wanted to support Nancy for as long as I could. And so uh, in our support group, our couples support group, we talked about various uh, opportunities for uh, community care, whether it's a long-term care facility, independent living, or memory care where 
the focus is exclusively on people who have dementia. And that's exactly what we decided to do, even though Nancy never uh, was involved in that final decision. It rested purely on me. And it was in the best interest for her and for me. And I believe uh, that really was good. And I personally, uh, Nicholas, am working with several people who are caregivers, who are struggling with the fact of when's the right time to place their loved one in a, in a com community, a memory care community. And that's a very difficult decision. And I keep urging them to explore those options and have a plan B because the stress levels of care partners is extreme. And it's a 24 seven environment where if they don't have additional support for themselves, they're going to struggle and their health will definitely decline. Right. And before we talk about, you know, the, the COVID pandemic and, and the difficulties that arose from, uh, from, from the public health crisis, you know, in the beginning, like how, how did Nancy adapt to the memory care community? How, how was the transition for her? You know, initially, she, she had a, a major problem with it. And uh, the first couple of days, she refused to take her medication, which helped control some of her, her uh, abilities and functions and mood swings. And so I had to come in and help her through that. And I was able to stabilize her and make her feel comfortable. But then the community itself really reached out and worked with her. The uh, caregivers in that facility really did an excellent job. And she, be, she developed some relationships with other people in that facility that really made the difference. And that's what happens is that people with dementia and memory issues need to find people they feel comfortable with. And the friendships that she developed there were very, very strong. And so when I would go in there, uh, she would be mostly engaged in activities or even with uh, some of her, her neighboring uh, companions. And it was very, very sweet that she would be so involved. Mm -hmm. And I would be able to take her out pre-COVID and take her to lunch take her to dinner, bring her back. And she never fought coming back to her community because she felt it was more like home for her. Mm, right, and you know, that must be one of the benefits of moving to a care facility is that, you know, um, your loved one will be living with people who are going through, you know, similar uh, similar journeys and um, yep. they, they, they have the opportunity to develop those relationships that was so important to, to Nancy, right? Yes, it was. And the security, the security that she was being taken care of, it was safe. She was not uh, able, not at risk. Uh, and so that worked out well. Right. And yeah, you know, Dennis, can you, you know, run us through the timeline of events um, with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Oh, gosh. How difficult that was oh, for the family. That was tragic. Uh, the date's still fresh in my mind. March 14th, I was there that morning. I took pictures of her. That afternoon, word came down from CDC to close. And in the state of Florida, they closed the facility to outside uh, engagement. 
And so from then on, from, from March 14th until September, I was basically locked out of being able to visit with Nancy. So for 28 weeks, the only, only connection we had was a window visit on our 47th anniversary and two outside drive-bys, which really was so uh, unnatural because they never let the residents out the front door. And I was not allowed outside my car during these drive-bys. And it was just heartbreaking. And during that COVID time, we did have access to FaceTime uh, through the iPod. But again, well, in Nancy's case, she had a severe uh, inability to communicate by telephone. And so I could not call her on the phone and talk with her, although I tried. And the efforts that were made on the iPad with FaceTime were unsuccessful because she could not relate to a picture on a tablet, nor connect to me uh, through that through that picture. Right, and and she was infected with COVID too, right? Well, the facility itself had a major outbreak of COVID, uh, where forty of the sixty residents and fourteen of the staff tested positive. When was that? That was in October of 2020. 2020. Uh, yeah. And uh, obviously, from that COVID experience, they closed the facility again and decided with the major outbreak to transfer the re some of the residents out. Um, and I, I'm going to take a pause here. Yeah, um, to go. Get the... And get my get my <laughs> dog taken care of. Hold on. Yeah. Get my <laughs> dog taken care of. Hold on. Yeah. Okay, I've got Jasmine here, so she'll be better on my lap. Okay, excuse me. So uh, Nancy was transferred because the only symptom she exhibited from COVID was extreme fatigue. And I saw her walk out of my facility and onto the stretcher to take her to a, quote, skilled, unquote, nursing home. And that was the last time she walked. And why do you say, quote, unquote, skilled? Well, the problem with the facility was they created a COVID wing out of an end of a hallway that obviously I was locked out of. When she was there, the physical therapy people did not understand that she had dementia and couldn't relate to any communication that they were trying to do with her. And so I feel this facility was understaffed, underprepared for dealing with COVID and definitely unprepared in dealing with my wife's Alzheimer's. Uh, she stayed there for 75 days where she developed severe bed sores. Uh, she declined significantly because my access to her was limited 
to just a couple of 30 minute visits outside while she was in a jerry bed. And she was covered up, drugged, and really incapable of communicating. In a very, very sad situation. And I could not wait to get her moved out, uh, which we were able to transfer her after I had her placed on uh, hospice. And the hospice um, staff assisted me in getting her transferred to a facility that I thought was better prepared in dealing with her, uh, which she then was transferred to and lived for another nine days. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and she passed away in um, January of uh... in January uh, and strictly from Alzheimer's, not COVID. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, I think my question from from that is I was wondering if you have any um, any lessons you learned or advice that you can give for other family members who are like navigating the situation of COVID, a loved one in uh, care. Absolutely. And, you know, the whole issue of advocacy was very, very strong for me. Throughout the uh, COVID experience, I participated in numerous uh, activities related to opening up the facility in Florida. And fortunately, we had an advocate uh, who helped in having our governor create a task force that rewrote and gave us uh, access as, uh, as being the uh, caregiver, the essential caregiver. And just recently, we created a book that I wrote a section on in here called Saving Them to Death, that is a bill before the Florida House and Senate giving access to at least to up to two family members or designated officials, regardless of the pandemic. And the isolation created from COVID led to severe decline uh, of Nancy. And I know the severe decline of others that uh, I am very familiar with as well. Uh, and although Nancy did not die from, from uh, COVID, uh, the isolation shortened her life significantly. So advocacy is very important in other states. Uh, there should be opportunities to explore similar experiences to this. And I credit, I credit uh, our writer of this, of this book, uh, Mary Daniel, for being able to put this together, sharing many stories of people who experienced the isolation in Florida. Right, and um, and Dennis, I also want to talk to you a little bit about um, the initiative that you launched uh, during uh, when you were a caregiver for Nancy, uh, the um, dementia-friendly dining in Central Florida. Yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about you know the inspiration uh, behind the, the the initiative and uh, what is it that um, you and well, your yeah. I credit my son Craig who shared an article from the Washington Post about a dementia-friendly dining experience in West Virginia. And it just so happened that Nancy and I would visit a family-owned restaurant in Orlando called the Meatball Stop. And in talking to the owners there, they understood Nancy had dementia. They themselves have dementia in their family. 
And when I talked about this dementia-friendly opportunity, they perked up immediately and said, we want to be first. And they became our first restaurant uh, in Orlando, the Central Florida area. But And they started in January of 2020. Unfortunately, three months later, they had to close down because of COVID. And we have not been able to restart dementia-friendly dining since that experience. But just Friday, last Friday, I got a call from one of the restaurants that I've been recruiting. And they said, we're interested in getting back into dementia-friendly dining. Are you willing to come train our staff and help promote this? And so I'm excited because this is the opportunity we've been waiting for. The rate of COVID is down in terms of uh, the positive numbers and the incidents. And so we're looking to restart dementia-friendly dining in Central Florida. And uh, that's where families could now take in a safe environment, their loved ones to restaurants where the staff are trained on dealing with their disability of dementia. And I'm excited about being able to reach out and explore other restaurants who would be willing to do this. Mm. And, you know, what, what are some of the, the training and some of the specific things that, you know, the, the restaurants or the staff need to know? Well, part, first of all, the restaurant needs to be able to set aside a day and time that's going to be designated for dementia-friendly dining, typically a low activity time. I prefer to have them do a back room or a separate area to where those family members could be focused on without interference from other patrons that could be in the facility. Because sometimes people with dementia don't act as a normal person would in terms of their, their attributes at the table. But that's okay when the staff are trained to deal with that. And so we would go in and train the staff on what are the peculiarities and what are the characteristics of a person who has dementia and how could we make that experience better? And so I've created a placemat uh, that would be placed in front of them for some level of activity. Uh, we would focus them in a seating position away from the door. Uh, we would make sure that they would have some liquids in front of them uh, to drink because hydration is important and it's another way of having them receive uh, nourishment. And then we would make sure that the staff paid attention to them uh, as patrons. So there's a lot of training that goes into it and we would definitely uh, work on making sure that uh, the staff there were well aware Mm -hmm. And how about like more broadly speaking then, like for like family members who are think who, who wants to like dine out with their loved ones living with dementia, do you have any advice for them in terms of how, uh, what are some good like strategies to navigate, you know, dining out? Um, yeah, some of the strategies are, are keeping it as simple as you can for the loved one, not tossing a menu in front of them and having them choose from this large number of choices, but knowing what that person likes and make suggestions. And those suggestions are simply A or B. And let them 
per choose if they can, or if they can't choose, say, I really think you would like this menu choice. And so having those ideas in, in mind before they go there, exploring the menu, uh, if need be, talking to management, uh, making sure that they can go to a safe place where uh, there wouldn't be a lot of activity, uh, there would not be a lot of noise because noise and activity do affect people who have dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that those are kind of things that uh, can come into play. And the fact that there is Alzheimer's dementia there should not restrict that person from still living like a, a regular normal human being. Right. Like you said, right, life doesn't stop uh, when people receive a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, right? We may need to make each day a positive experience. And if that means being able to go out and enjoy it or bringing food home or whatever they like. Uh, for me, it was always taking frozen custard to Nancy. She loved that. And so I always made sure that regardless of where she was, we either went out for frozen custard or I brought it to her. Um, especially late in the disease when uh, the amount of sugar intake uh, really won't make a difference uh, in in the life choice. Mm -hmm. You mean you would bring custard to, to Nancy when she was in like a, in, in a care facility? Yep. Even in her nursing home, I would bring her frozen custard and feed it to her. Got it. And um, and Dennis, last the the last project that I want to talk to you about is uh, Nancy's Book Foundation. Uh, and you mentioned it a little bit about the work uh, in in the beginning yeah. of the interview. But you know, Nancy's Book Foundation was uh, really founded um, to extend Nancy's legacy and her career as a librarian. And yeah, tell us a little bit more about the inspiration behind behind that and the work of the. Uh, of the foundation then? Well, what, one of my sons uh, for Christmas, rather than providing Christmas presents for us, would buy books and send it to one of their friends who was a teacher in a Title I school uh, and would do that in Nancy's name. Well, these kids would write to Nancy thanking her for the donation and really appreciating it. She lit up. And so when she was near death, my sons and I decided to create a foundation called the Nana's Books Foundation. And we're a nonprofit foundation awaiting 501c3 from the IRS. But last summer, we donated 31 books to her hometown library. And these books are specific books that we've critiqued and evaluated. And they're books on Alzheimer's, dementia, and other disabilities. And now, this semester, we've actually chosen books, that, which are great appropriate books, and have already ordered over 700 books that will be sent to her school district, which is a Title I school, and that's what we're targeting. We're targeting Title I schools. We're identifying classrooms. We're identifying students uh, in those classrooms who will receive at least one book from us on either Alzheimer's, dementia, or a disability to open up uh, what it means and be open to students and family members who may have a disability. Mm -hmm. And we've now, uh, we'll be 
getting those books to her hometown school uh, by the end, well, sometime in April, probably. And, you know, you, you've talked about how important it is to, um, to educate and, and spread awareness about dementia uh, among children and, and kids. Um, I was wondering how, you know, your family managed to do that in terms of, you know, telling um, your children's uh, uh, grand, your, well, your grandchildren about um, Nancy's Alzheimer's diagnosis. And how, how did you navigate that? Well, the navigation was difficult because the kind of resources that are available for kids are very, very limited. And I myself am looking at creating an activity book to help with that as well. But I have identified a few books and are still looking for more. And so I actually open up and we're willing to uh, accept volunteers to help with the Nano's Books Foundation to identify books on Alzheimer's and dementia that are great appropriate and expand our list right now because it's very limited. And so uh, not only are we looking for volunteers, but I know our foundation will be looking for recruiting some board members as well. And so if there are people out there who have an interest in helping out, we would be more than willing uh, to hear from them because we do have books that need to get reviewed and determined whether or not they would be appropriate uh, for students. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to public libraries, we're also making sure that there are resources in the public library that relate to Alzheimer's dementia for adults because the myth that goes along with dementia is something that should not be talked about. Well, that's no longer true. We now have over 6 million people in our country that are facing the Alzheimer's dementia diagnosis. We have over 11 million caregivers, care partners who help out. And certainly the numbers are only gonna increase as our population ages. And so it's important that we educate not only our adults, but our children as well, because they are our future caregivers and we are gonna be dependent on them for their love and compassion. Got it. Well, thank you so much, Dennis, for sharing your experience and, and your work in, uh, in this space. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to add or that I haven't uh, asked yet? Well, if, if I could at least list the email address, if, any, if anybody's interested in helping out with the Nanos Books Foundation, it's nanosbooks21 at gmail.com. And uh, Nicholas, if we can include that somewhere, that would be great. Sure. Yeah, we can put that uh, in the description of our, uh, the recording of this video that will be uploaded into YouTube. So, yeah, happy to do that. Uh, thank you, Dennis, again for your time. and. For our audience, um, if you miss any of this live talk, we'll have a recording of this interview, as I mentioned on YouTube, and we'll have a transcript published on our website later on as well. Uh, thank you everyone for joining. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T dot com. 
and send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.